At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We're glad you're here as we return to the book of Genesis for our newest series, Family, Why Bother? In the pages of Genesis, we'll discover all kinds of hurting relationships that prove family has been dysfunctional from the very beginning. Join us as we uncover the only one who can renew and restore our broken families. Our text this morning is from Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male oxen, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. The Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What happens when we fail to believe promises and believe good news? What goes on in our lives and in our homes even, our households and our families and our relationships, what goes on when we fail to believe good things, good news? I really enjoy the Food Network television show, Restaurant Impossible. It's hosted by this strong, built chef from Britain, Robert Irvine. Uh, in that show, he, he goes and he finds these failing, collapsing, terrible restaurants all over the country, and uh, he spends a significant amount of time and even money uh, dumping in and renovating that restaurant. He, he works with the owners. It's a 48-hour renovation. They get a new menu. He gives them professional training and coaching. He sits down with the owners and shows them how they're improperly running the business and, and how they're just failing at every point and tries to help them navigate through those things and even figure out what's the, what's the barriers, what are the problems that underlie their restaurant business. And, and by the end of the 48 hours, the entire operation is made over and improved. Irvine walks away laying out to the owners uh, good news and he, and he gives them a business plan and prospects for the future and, and says, here's how it's going to go really, really well for you with, with great service and with great food and just wise operations and, and it's going to be a profitable, successful restaurant if you listen to what I say. Uh, now, that 48-hour moment, the, the owners are just stunned and aware and just in awe of what happened. But what intrigues me the most, my favorite part of the show, is the, the end of the show. 
It's the postscript that comes after it at the end of the episode. Usually there's a gap somewhere I've read between a few months and even a year between when they film the episode and then when it actually airs a little bit later. And, and so that little postscript tells us, now in the watching of it, here's what's happened in the time since they were actually there. Sometimes there's good news. The, the owners, they've followed through, they've listened to Irvine's advice, they've, they've managed the menu and the, the changes in the restaurant, and the restaurant's doing Doing well, it actually uh, bore, bore out the promise of what Irvine had brought in. But many times, it seems, most times, I, if I think about it, it seems that the owners fall back into their bad habits. They ignore or take for granted the the good investment that was given. They disregard Irvine's wisdom and and skill sets altogether, and the result is inevitable: failure. The business collapse. It's out. Now, restaurants are one thing. Let's all admit that. Now I know we're all hungry now. <laughs> But let's think about families for just a moment. Let's think about our households, even the family of the church. What happens when we fail to believe the good promises, the good news, the good word of God in the lives of our family and the dynamics that exist there? What happens when we fail to believe God's promises, his good news, his word? We're in a series right now called Family. Why bother? We've been paying attention to the family dynamics and dysfunction of the first families in the book of Genesis. Our aim here is to better understand who we are created to be as human beings and to understand why have things gone so badly? I mean, why is this world such a mess? Why are our homes and our relationships so off course? I like, as one person put it, Jesus may be in your heart, but grandpa lives in your bones. These family issues are are still the family issues that we deal with today. We were not just looking back at history and saying, wow, what a mess that was. We're looking into our own lives as well and seeing, this is why we're a mess. This is what's going on with us today. Uh, I'm grateful for this because we see here that we're not just left in some sort of unbreakable, multi-generational cycle that we can't get out of. God's word shows us the remedy that Christ alone secures and offers to us by his grace and power to see change in our families and in our households. There's a common thread that runs through the entire story of Genesis and through the stories of the book of Genesis. It starts this way. We're made by God For dignity, made in the image of God. Every human being created in his image for his glory. And yet that dignity has been marred and and even lost in our failure to believe and to trust the word of God. Our first parents displayed that. Adam and Eve in the garden failed to believe God's word. And they fell. And human relationships, especially marriage, have been impacted ever since then. It's just been brokenness since day one. It even went on to the next generation. Their children, their sons, Cain and Abel. Cain failed to believe the word of God. And as a result, he ended up murdering his brother Abel. And brotherhood, family relationships, impacted ever since. In fact, all human relationships, particularly family relationships, are impacted deeply by the trouble that comes from when we fail to believe the promises of God. Abram, or or Abraham as we know him, experienced this trouble as well. In fact, we'll see today that our households face serious trouble when we fail to trust God's promises. Abram's life and and this story, this snippet of his life and his dark moments demonstrate to us that our households face serious trouble when we fail to trust God's promises. 
So we're going to move forward in the storyline just a bit. We're jumping from, from Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4 all the way to Genesis chapter 12. And we're going to find and meet a new family. This, this might be called the first family of faith. And Abram stands at the, at the head of that. He, starts at the, he stands at the start. And this story is about what unfolds in his family. In fact, the rest of the book of Genesis really is the, the narrowing in the focus of what goes on with Abram's family. What becomes of Abraham and his family of faith. We meet him in chapter 11, verses 27 to 32, and we find that his dad is Terah, and they live in this ancient Mesopotamian city of Ur. It's a pagan city. Multiple gods are worshiping. Abram's a pagan man, and he lives up in that environment. And God comes to him in, verse, in chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, God comes and speaks to him, and he says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God calls Abram to a new life, a new land, and he's going to have to have trust. He's going to have to believe God's word, have faith in God to see that through. God makes these promises to Abram, and, and just specifically here, he says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that it will be a blessing. But just think about that, that security, that impact. God's saying, I have your back. I will bless you and make you a blessing to many. And verse 3 demonstrates just the impact of those promises and the reality of Abram's life. God says, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What a huge promise of security and well-being for Abram. He doesn't have to go through life fearing anybody anymore. If they treat me poorly, if they dishonor me, God will deal with them. If, if they bless me, God's going to bless them even more. Wherever he goes, it's just a, a beautiful, great thing. And that's the promise God makes. And the question is, Abram, will you, will you believe God? Will you trust his word, trust this promise that's there? Now, initially, the answer is yes. Abram believes God. They, they get up and go. They begin to follow the direction and the leading of the Lord. Abram, his wife Sarai, his lot nephew, they all get up and go, and they follow God and trust his word and his promises. It's, it's smooth sailing. It's great. They leave the land, and they head down from Haran down to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, God says, this is it. Here's the place. This land, this is verse 7, to your offspring I will give this land. And so Abram builds an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him there. He worships God. He praises God. Everything is wonderful. It's easy to follow the Lord when things are great. It's, it's easy to, to, to obey his word, to, to trust him, to, to believe by faith what he says and to walk with him when things are smooth and they're all right. But trouble comes. Hardship shows up. And when the hardship of trial hits Abram's life, the tension of trusting God's promises become very, very real. Before we put Abraham on a, on a high pedestal, when we think of him as like some superhero of the faith, we have to acknowledge he was a man deeply flawed. He, he failed big time. And, and I, I say that as encouragement to us because Abram was no stronger, no better, nor had any greater advantages to faith than we do today. And we can learn from him. His failure, which is recorded for us here in the scriptures, helps instruct and build our faith. 
So the story we get to in verses 10 through 20, right after receiving all these promises, show us the trouble that we can bring down upon ourselves and our families when we fail to trust God's promises. Let me speak this morning to three ways that we can bring trouble down upon our families when we fail to trust the good promises of God, when we fail to trust his word. I want to show us these three ways we can bring trouble down upon our families. First of all, we bring trouble down upon our families when we fail to trust God's word by dishonoring others through deception. We dishonor other people in our families, in our households, in our lives, in our relationships. It doesn't have to be just the household, but, but we dishonor other people through deception. When we fail to trust God's promises, when we fail to trust his word, we end up denigrating and dishonoring others. And deception is often the device we use in that dishonoring. It was for Abram. Here's the story here. Abraham and his family, they're following the Lord into the land, and, and the Lord says this is the place, and he worships, and then the trial comes. The hardship hits, and it's a bad one. Verse 10 says, there was a famine in the land. And we think, okay, this is, this is no good. There's no food. There's no crops. Uh, it, it's not going well. And so Abraham decides, I think in a noble way, to care for his family, to pray. We've got to put food on the table. We've got to eat. I've got to care for my, my household here. So it says that Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Now, the Hebrew here, in its emphasis, it repeats. Remember when Hebrew repeats, it's emphasizing something? So we see the famine was there was a famine in the land, and the famine was very severe in the land. That is to say, in the land, there's no food. It's not like you, you only get like one choice of corn on the grocery aisle. It's like there's no corn at all. There's no food at all. Nothing. And so, so Abram takes the family down to Egypt. And, and the idea of sojourning there is, it, is the idea of living there temporarily until things get better. You know, they're having a conversation. and they're like, The markets are empty. There's nothing to eat. So let's just... Let's just pack up the RV, let's head down south, and we'll just kind of hang out there for a little while until this weather's over, until next crop season, and then we'll be back. It'll be great. It'll be all right. Everything will work out. So Abram, taking care of his family, says, let's go. As they approach Egypt, though, however, Abram, Abraham starts to think and, and run some scenarios through his head. He's just kind of playing out what will happen in Egypt? What will go on in this land I've never been to, but I've maybe heard of? And, and like, what's going what, to work out there? And he, and he begins to dwell on what might happen, and he plays out some fearful scenarios in his head. And, and it's almost as if he's forgotten the promise of verse 3. Remember that promise? If they bless you, Abram, you'll be blessed. And if they dishonor you, they'll be cursed. He worries the Egyptians will see his wife Sarai's beauty. This is the the fear that creeps into his mind. Verse 11, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. And that probably won him some brownie points there in the moment. And yet here's the fear. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. They'll, oh, we're married. That's his wife. And what will they do? Then they'll kill me, but they will let you live. His fear is for his own life. His fear is for his own well-being. They'll see Sarai's beauty, they'll desire her for their own harems, they'll kill Abram and take her for themselves. So what, how's he going to navigate that? He doesn't remember the promise of God. He doesn't believe God's word there, and so he concocts a half-truth. He, he creates a big lie story to deceive the Egyptians. He, he says to Sarai, hey, just, just say that you're my sister that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life might be spared for your sake. Now think about how dishonoring this is. 
First of all, Abram is immediately making Sarai complicit in his deception and lies. He, he's, he is forcing her to lie along with him and, and, to, and to spread falsehood around. Not only that, which is terrible in and of itself, but he, but he shifts his relationship of his marriage from we to me, and he begins to treat Sarai like property. He says, if, I'm, if we go in and I'm your husband, they'll kill me. But, but if I go in and, and you're my brother and you're my guardian brother, then I have a bargaining chip in the game to preserve your life and to keep my life. Like, it, it'll work out really well. He objectifies his wife immediately. You're just chattel. You're just an object. You're just someone I can use as a bargaining chip to make sure my own self-interest is kept. And notice his selfish focus here in the text. He says, so it may go well with me. Tell him you're my sister so that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared. What about we? <laughs> what, about, what about us and our life and our relationship and our marriage and our household? It's none of that. He just singular-minded focuses in and is all about me. His deception is dishonoring in his family, and trouble comes. Maybe you remember the movie The Incredibles. Mr. Incredible there in the movie. He's the, he's the big superhero dad. And he, and he finds himself working this ordinary insurance adjuster job. He, he, boss just doesn't work out well, and he gets fired. But then this other company comes along, and it's illegal to do superhero work. And so they hire him to do superhero work, but he has to do it secretly. So he starts working out again and getting buff. He starts traveling and getting fit. He, he tells his wife he's going out to conferences and conventions. He begins to make more money and, and wealth kind of flows into the household. And all of a sudden there's a new flashy, shiny car in the garage. But he's holding that all as a big secret from his wife and his family. And she becomes suspicious. She begins to doubt what he's saying. She wonders what's really going on. And she's crushed. This is Elastigirl. She's crushed by the unknown secrecy about what he's doing. The, the story comes to a culminating point when he's off on a business trip doing superhero work, work and the wife determines he's in an adulterous relationship and she heads off to confront him about it. She gets on her plane and ends up flying out to where he is, but the kids snuck on the plane as well. And that's when the supervillain shows up and starts lobbing missiles and bombs all to destroy and blow up the plane, which she's on. The, the, the point here, the illustration is to see that deception brings about dishonoring and trouble upon everybody. The family is rocked by lies. So, so let me just ask you this this morning. Are you dishonoring others in your family, in your household, uh, perhaps even the roommates that you live with, even in the church? Are you dishonoring others through deception? Are you, are you playing a game? Are, are you hiding things or covering up your sin in order to protect yourself, that it may go well with me, that I may live? Are there skeletons in your closet that if your spouse discovered, they would be deeply damaging? Are, are you spinning a narrative and a, a fake reality in your life to your kids that when they discover it and when they figure it out, all it will do is bring confusion and distrust that will hurt them and hurt you because you failed to open up and be honest? Is the trouble of deception present in your family today? Well, come clean. Come clean and believe the better promises of God in Christ. 
I mean, Jesus himself understands. He was the victim of his own best friend's, good friend Judas's deception and betrayal. He was shamed. Jesus was shamed and dishonored, and yet that was the means by which he worked to restore honor and dignity to all who will trust him. You can come clean in repentance. You don't have to hide with the lies. You can come clean and receive the restorative honor of God's promises to his children. His promises say, if you believe and trust in me, you will be forgiven. All your sin wiped away. His promises that say, if you believe and trust in me, you'll be adopted as my children. Every spiritual blessing poured out to you. His promises of his eternal love, he'll never forsake you. He'll never let you go. You don't have to live in deception and you don't have to dishonor others in it. You can come clean and repent and believe the promises of God. So the first way that we would fail to trust the promises of God is when we deceive others, we bring that damage upon one another. But also, secondly, we act in self-interest for personal gain. It's not just deception that Abram plays with and dishonoring his wife. He begins to act in self-interest. All he's focused upon himself is himself so that he gains more, so that he comes out the winner in the situation. Not only did his fears, his greatest nightmares become a reality, but so did his best dreams here. Just as he expected, the Egyptians notice Sarai's beauty. Look with me at verse 14. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Now notice here, uh, the scripture, again, with its emphasis, the Hebrew with its repetitiveness, it's making an emphasis. Abram acknowledges her beauty in verse 11. I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance, but now the Egyptians, they say she is very, very beautiful. She's incredibly gorgeous, and everybody knows it, but she's been objectified. Sarai's name is not mentioned in the text again until verse 17. She's just the woman now, just a pawn, just a chip in the game, just just a possession. As, as they enter Egypt, they see that she was very beautiful, and her beauty is so prominent that word starts spreading around to Pharaoh and the, the king of the land. Verse 15, when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Now, let me just help you understand the culture here. Your status as a leader, especially a national leader, was displayed by the possessions and the material abundance you had. Having great things, Valuable things, beautiful things made you all the more prominent and famous. And that included people, and for them, wives as well. Having a harem of wives was a status symbol. We get the concept of trophy wives from this cultural narrative. The more beautiful the woman in your life, in your harem, in your family, in your household, the, be the better you are. And so if Sarai, who is exceedingly beautiful, is in Pharaoh's household, he's the best. He's the greatest. Abram concocts this lie so that Sarai would end up in Pharaoh's household and he would benefit. Because the way it worked was if she is just his sister and he has the authority and the right as the guardian brother to, to marry her off, he's going to get a bride price back for himself. He's going to make a little loot in the game as well. And so a deal would be brokered and it was. She was taken into Pharaoh's house and verse 16 says, for her sake... He dealt well with Abram. Pharaoh dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. He is loaded. Abram gets everything in the deal. He was afraid for his life, and he comes out a filthy rich man in the situation. Abundant wealth. 
But remember his motive in this. It wasn't because he cared for Sarai. It wasn't because he wanted to protect her. He says in verse 13, say this lie so that it will go well with me. He puts his marriage in complete jeopardy so that he will prosper. He makes a sacrifice of his family for his own self-interest and personal gain. I mean, I mean, consider again what this says to Sarai, what this does to her. Abram basically pimps her out to Pharaoh. Go live in his harem, sexually please him, treat him good so that I make a profit and I do well here. It all comes down to a lack of trust in God's promises, in God's provision. God was going to care for them. And yet he took matters into his own hands. He becomes a self-seeking, self-preserving, self-interested being that only looks out to benefit and care for himself and nothing for his wife. There's no thought in Abram's mind that this indecent proposal would produce trouble for their marriage and the future that God had promised. You know, I'm glad that nobody here is sacrificing family for the sake of self-interest or personal gain. That really warms my heart. Or are we? Are we living in fear and failing to trust God in his promises and instead thinking that we have to protect our own interests? Have we forgotten truths like God is our provider and instead we manipulate and act to make sure that we come out ahead, even at the loss of, our, of the well-being of our marriages, our children's developments, our relationship with our families, those around us, our roommates, whoever it might be. Friends, the American dream demands that you sacrifice your relationships, you sacrifice your households, you sacrifice your marriage and your children on the ladder of corporate escalation to make more money and to be more secure and to add another trophy to your case. And we may say, we may try and justify it, we're saying, well, they benefit from the income and the money that I make, and it's good for them too, but I wonder at what cost. And let me just speak to men here in the, in the room this morning, those of you who are husbands, fathers, future fathers, young men, unmarried men right now. We're called in such a way, as men, to see that there is flourishing we bear the responsibility and the call to see that there is flourishing in our families, relationally, spiritually, emotionally. You're not just called to see flourishing in your family financially. Holistic flourishing. And so I would ask you, men, are you intentionally seeking the well-being of your household in all areas? Or are you only looking out for your own interests? Are you only concerned about you winning at the end of the day? Guys, you'll rain down trouble on your family if you ignore God's promises and good news for you, even if you make all the money in the world. And I just want you to hear, take a good look at what God offers to those who believe God's promises in Christ. Let me just give this to us through the lens of Ephesians, although I could do it in many other places in the scripture. God promises to those who believe in Christ, who trust in him, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I just... Comprehensive, every spiritual blessing, all of his good for us in the heavenly places. He, he promises those to those who trust in Christ and believe in him the riches, and that's not necessarily the financial riches of this world, but the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, a far surpassing wealth. He promises to us the immeasurable riches of his grace. I mean, there's no dollar amount that can match up to his grace. He promises to us the unsearchable, unsearchable riches of Christ. And to those who trust in him, he gives the riches of his glory. 
If you think that what's offered to us in Christ is of less value than a few extra hundred thousand dollars in your bank account, I'm, I'm sorry, you're sadly mistaken. Friends, don't bring down trouble on your family by forsaking the promises of God for the stuff of this world. We see that we fail to trust the promises of God when we dishonor others through our deception. We fail to trust the promises of God and we act in self-interest for personal gain. But thirdly, and the most seriously, is that we inflict harm instead of bringing blessing when we fail to trust the promises of God. Now think about the serious threat to the fulfillment of God's promises that are here with Abram's story. Abram is about to make a permanent home in Egypt. He went down there just to sojourn, but now his wife is living in another house. He wants to see to her well-being. He's not going anywhere. I mean, he's about to sign the deal for a mortgage. He is planting his roots deep, but not in the land that God gave him. Abram's wife, Sarai, she's in the bed of another man. How are he and Sarai going to become a great nation as God has promised? God's plans, though, can't be thwarted. His purposes will stand. He will always keep his promises. And so we find in verse 17, God acts. He gets in the middle of the story and intervenes. The Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. God acts and he brings affliction on Pharaoh. You might say, well, that's not fair. God should bring affliction. He should bring the pain on Abram because he was the dummy in this one. He's the one who's self-interested. Abram was so comfortable, he wasn't going to make a move at all. He had no need to. God had to bring the wedge in between another relationship now with Pharaoh and Sarai. He had to bring the trouble there so that someone else would act to get Abram in line. And so he does. The plagues come upon Pharaoh and his house. And it seems that the Lord has revealed to Pharaoh what's happened with Sarai, who she really is. And so Pharaoh calls Abraham, verse 18, and says, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my own wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. I mean, he's asking, what have you done to me? Remember God's word to Abram? Abram is to be a blessing to all the nations. But here, because of his lack of trust and faith in God's word and promises, he's actually bringing down curses and plagues, literally, on the other nations. He's not bringing blessing, he's bringing harm. Pharaoh acts and he effectively deports Abram and Sarai immediately from Egypt, with the result there in verse 20, he gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Like, get out of the country, no good here, take the stuff, go, you're gone. I think that one can trace the disparity between the Egyptians and the people of Israel that we see in the scriptures, that, that strife that happens all throughout the Bible, we can trace that to this initial encounter and deception. Friends, consider what we are to be in the world as we believe the promises of God as Christians. Abram brings harm instead of blessing. We as followers of Jesus, because of his grace, are to be blessing to the world. Jesus says it in the metaphors of being salt and light. As salt and light, we are to, to be agents in the world of blessing and goodness. As salt, we're to be a seasoning agent, to preserve, to create curiosity, even to add flavor to this world. And so when we believe the promises that Jesus is our hope, our Savior, our Lord, and we live in faith from his word, we show the world a better story. When we, when we believe the promises of Jesus, we live so distinctly in our lives. When we believe his word, that we push back the moral chaos of our times. When we believe the promises of Jesus, we, we live so spiritually abundant that we create curiosity. We, we make space for our neighbors to say, 
what's going on in your life? And they ask, as First Peter says, they ask about the hope that we have in Christ. When we believe the promises of God, we, act, we add a, a, and create a distinctive grace-driven love. And it creates a flavor of love in all the world that it doesn't have because of Christ. When we're a blessing, when we believe the promises of God is light, we shine the glory of God in the dark places of this world. We bring truth and clarity and justice in a world that's lost in deception and darkness and depression and desperate looking for hope and love. We bring the light of God, his glory to the world. We're to be a blessing. And yet when we fail to believe the Lord's promises, when we fail to trust his word and his good news, we don't display the light of the gospel. We're not blessings to the world around us. We, the salt has lost its saltiness. Our children don't see us trusting the Lord, and so they won't trust him either. Our neighbors watch us live the very same lives they do, and they have no need to be curious about what's going on in our hearts because there's no distinctiveness. We don't bear a faithful and true witness in the world because we are too caught up in the promises of this world and instead inflict harm. When we live out of sync with the promises of God in the gospel, we become the very barriers to the gospel we want to see removed. Are you inflicting harm in your household instead of bringing a blessing? I think the story here wraps up in this way. If, if our households face serious trouble when we fail to trust God's promises, the answer for us is to repent and believe the good news. It's to go back to the fundamentals. Can you identify your, your unbelief? Do you see where you're failing to believe the word of God, the promises of God? And, and instead, are perhaps you, can you identify those lies and those narratives that you're, that you're training yourself in? Do you, do you see where you're self-interested, you're self-promoting, you're selfish, only looking out for yourself? Do you see in the relationships of your household, your, your friendships, do you see destruction? Harm, you don't see flourishing, that's an indication. If there's not flourishing in your relationship, especially in your marriage and, and with your children, if you don't see flourishing in those relationships around you, I, I would ask, are you believing the good news of God and his promises for you? Friends, the answer is to repent, believe the good news. Jesus is the true brother who is faithful over the household of God. And so we come and we consider and we look to him. We see him. We repent and believe his good news and say, every word of yours is faithful. We follow his promises because that's where life is found. That's where wholeness is found. That's where flourishing is found. If we're seeing the trouble of our sin, if we're seeing the trouble of failure in faith, the answer is to repent today, to believe the good news and trust Christ. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org forward slash connect to introduce yourself to us today.